This podcast is sponsored by Enriched. Now, if you're a regular listener to the show, then you'll know that I'm not a big fan of Big Pharma. So I do everything I can to try and stay out of their sickness subscription system. And a key component in my daily arsenal is a dose of what I'm calling the White Basement Lion King Super Stack. First, chugga mushroom, known as the king of mushrooms for a reason. Its potent antioxidant, antiviral, immune-supporting properties make it the most studied medicinal mushroom on earth. And although there can be only one king, the king wears a mane, a lion's mane. Brain-boosting, neuron-sharpening, cognition-enhancing, lion's mane is the perfect partner for King Chaga and the second half of the Lion King Super Stack. For me, it's the perfect start to my day helping me to go hard and go home. Go to enriched.co, that's E-N-R-I-C-H-D.co, and use the discount code WHITEBASEMENTPOD to get a 10% discount site-wide. Start your day like a king. Go to Enriched and grab the Lion King Super Stack now. Here's the thing. What don't you want in bottom side control? Crossface. Crossface or pressure on the diaphragm, right? Those two things. If you turn towards your opponent, you increase crossface potential. Yeah? Yeah. If you lie on your back, you're increasing the diaphragm pressure. Yeah. yeah. So what happens if you turn away? Well, one of the things people are scared of is to give their back, right? But you don't necessarily have to give your back if you control the arm that's by the legs. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the White Basement Podcast. Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at White Basement Pod. Leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And if you're watching on YouTube, like and subscribe. Please do share the show with other people. It helps us to grow. My guest today is Peter Olsen, a former professional racing driver. Peter retired at the age of 26 after a serious accident. He's a practicing chiropractor and long-time BJJ black belt under Mauricio Gomez and the late great Nick Brooks. Peter runs Viking BJJ in Milton Keynes, which he set up in 2016, as well as a wellness centre in Bedford and a health coaching business. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, so maybe maybe I need to do a quick uh, thank you to Marcel, um, who's been on the show for connecting me with uh, Coach DW, and Coach DW for connecting me with you. Yeah. And he's, he said, I need to ask you about your knees <laughs> and I need to ask you something else as well. But we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll circle back to that later yeah, on. Sure. So um, and normally when I get people in, I, I ask them about their kind of martial arts and, and jujitsu history. But as I said, just before we started recording, I'm, I'm quite fascinated about the motor racing. Yeah. And that was from when you were a kid, right? Yeah, I started when I was 12. So can you can you run me through what it's like to go motor racing? Um how did it how did it all come about? Well, it started off as just something that I really enjoyed doing and I turned out to be quite good at it. Uh certainly certainly at a national level. And then uh I wanted to continue and as you go up uh, the ranks, it becomes more and more of a business and less and less fun. And uh, it's all more about money. 
And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's an expensive pastime, it's right? It's extremely expensive. Yeah, because even I mean, I've uh, I have no motor racing experience at all, but even just having done a few track days on motorbikes and motorbike track days are a lot cheaper than a car. Yeah. And it's still the best part of probably 300 quid mm-hmm. for the day. Maybe like set of tires might do you like three or four track days, fuel, etc. Yeah. So I imagine trying to be competitive, even in sort of karting or whatever is a money pit. Yeah, it was. I mean, uh, when I was racing in, uh, gosh, 1987 um, in in the Super 1 series in, in the UK. There was a guy called Alan McNish who'd just done it the year before and he, he was a super talented driver. Um, it's amazing that he didn't get further in motorsport really. Um, but he was reputedly spending 60,000 a year in carts, in go-karts, right? And that was in 1986, presumably, if I got my dates right. So... That, that was a lot of money in 1986 and I'm sure it's, you know, maybe a couple of hundred grand now. I'd, I'd have to ask some contacts. But it's not cheap if you want to win, okay? You can compete at a level where you're not going to win um, and you can do it much cheaper. But if you wanted to be uh, really competitive, you needed like eight engines and you needed three chassis and, you know, it was not cheap to do it. And so did you guys do all the kind of mechanical stuff yourselves or did you need a mechanic as well? No, I had a really good engineer that was doing all the mechanical stuff. My dad started with me, but, um, you know, as you get more competitive, your dad becomes less and less useful as a mechanic, (laughs) you know, because there's there's massive gaps in his understanding of uh, how to set up a car to be fast. Um, So we had an engineer and he was really amazing. And so, what, what does it? What does a cart season look like? I mean, how how long is, does that season last? How many races do you, do you do? And is it, that's just sort of nationally? So you've got a number of circuits that you go to around the country. Yeah, um, I think it's about fifteen, twenty races, something in that region. It was when I was doing it, I think. But this is a long time ago. You're talking about almost forty years ago. And did you say you were twelve when you started? Racing yeah, cars. Yeah. And so what, what's, what's that age bracket then that you... That raced? was called juniors. So the, and that's, yeah. How, how old does that go up to? Um, there's, different, there's different brackets. I think they start kids at eight now. And I think when I first started, it was around 12. And then they had, uh, uh, that was called the junior category. And then they started, I think, boosters um, the year after I started. And I think that the age... Uh, range went down to eight then but again my memory's not very good about, <laughs> about, about what ages we started at and all this kind of stuff and and so how how many seasons of of karting did you do um i did between 12 and 17 would have been i moved to cars so uh that's five years right and was it did, did you have to get a sponsor then to get into a car yeah i had a good sponsor who's my dad Oh, okay. Yeah. But so how much is a car season then? There's more oh, than a cart ca- season. In cars, yes. Yeah, sorry, I did need to get a sponsor, but uh, we never really had much money from any sponsorship. So um, a competitive season, uh, sort of a Formula Ford level. I did something called Vauxhall Lotus at the time. Uh, it was just above Formula Ford. And you're probably talking about 200 grand to do that. 
Those are like open wheel cars. Yes. So do, do you have to buy the car or do you kind of lease it for a season? Depends. We we bought our car, um, but some guys uh, just pay a team to run the car for them. Um, that's what most people do. And and what happens to that car at the end of the season? Were you able to hang on to anything? Yeah, you, usually you can you could sell it, but it's not it's not going to be a competitive chassis. The the chassis tends to last about a year before the fatigue builds up in the chassis, and then it becomes less competitive. You get little things like cracks building up in between the joints, and uh, they're not easy to see. So you tend to to throw the the chassis away for safety as well as you know the lack of performance. Or you might keep it as a spare if you smash mm. your main chassis. Right. And so how many how many seasons did you do in the cars then? I uh, retired when I was 26, if I'm, my memory's right, 25, 26. And, um, because of an accident? Yeah, I had an accident which I didn't seemingly get injured in it at all. I, I rolled the car and uh, a few weeks later I started to develop a really bad back pain. And it got to the point where I could not walk much more than 100 metres and I'd have to sit down on the pavement and just five minutes just to try to recover from walking 100 metres, um, which is weird at that age because I was pretty fit at that age. And, uh, yeah, I was basically crippled um, until I met a doctor who, who fixed me. And what, what was the issue? I had uh, a lesion in the spine, an injury in the spine, um, the kind of injury that doesn't show up very easily on, on MRIs and x-rays and things like that. So I wasn't really getting in much help. Uh, but I met a, a Swedish chiropractor and uh, he said, I, I could have a look at that for you. And I tried everything else. So, you know, I didn't know what chiropractic was, but uh, I said, okay, I was desperate. And he looked at it and uh, after a few visits, I was feeling pretty much 100% better. Um, and that's what prompted me to to go into that field, stop motor racing, stop wasting my time and energy because I, I didn't have the budget really to be competitive at that point. So did you go from there, you, you decided, right, I'm going to go and do chiropractic? Yeah, yeah, that's what I did. And how long does that take to, um, to study? Five years. It took me five years. Is that sort of a full-time course? It is, yeah. 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 And you've been, you've been sort of practicing ever since, so since kind of... 30-ish. I'm not a chiropractor anymore. So oh, okay. I qualified at, uh, when I was 34 and I deregistered as a chiropractor when I was 35 and that was in uh, 2006. Oh, so I've been practicing as a spinal specialist in, under common law since then. Oh, okay. So the, you do the same kind of treatment and, and patterns and stuff but not under the name of chiropractic. Correct, yeah. Interesting. Why? Why did you deregister? I don't like to be regulated in the sense that there are many uh, health problems that present to you in a, in a chiropractic clinic that are beyond chiropractic. And the way the regulation was when I, uh, when I chose to deregister was you're not allowed to say anything or guide a patient in a direction that might um, disagree with the, the health care that they're already getting. And that puts you at risk. Um, but, you know, if people are, are taking drugs for lifestyle problems, you know, if they eat badly, you're not going to fix that with drugs. And I didn't want to be the guy who was just going along with that 
I want to help people to get healthy. So if someone's got a lifestyle disease because they eat poorly or they don't exercise or they're depressed or stressed out or anything like that, I want to be able to give them advice that is going to help them to get healthier, which is, you know, eat better. Don't, don't take those drugs. They're not helping you. Eat better. Interesting. So was, that's kind of what led to setting up the clinic? No, it's what led to me deregistering. Yeah, but I mean, once you once you kind of made that decision, okay, I'm I'm gonna do my own thing. Did you did you think right? Well, I need a I need a sort of base of operations, or were you kind of doing it mobile? And I had the base of operations already. I had it for a couple of months before I deregistered. So, um, I watched another friend of mine who was giving the same advice uh, to his patients uh, have have a complaint against him, and basically not being able to argue his side, not being able to present evidence to protect himself and justify what he was doing because of regulation. So that would be just a, a complaint to the um, chiropractic association, whatever. Yeah. So w w would there be any kind of like legal uh, issue with that? complaint or it's just literally you could get deregistered by the governing body yeah you can get into trouble and uh, you can get suspended for doing stuff that you believe is in the best interest of your patient but you but you can practice kind of like you say under common law kind of independently anyway you could just make that switch you can you yeah, yeah. A, a good example of it is there's a there's a medical doctor in canada called carolyn dean and she went on television to speak out about the dangers of sugar. And she got struck off, right? Now, if she wasn't regulated, she could talk about the dangers of sugar, which is the ethical, correct thing to do, right? It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. It's a we, crazy we, world. When regulation becomes uh, a, a political um, handcuff, then it's wrong, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, well, we've just seen a, you know, an, an unarguable example of how that all can go very wrong over the last few years, right? With For the, sure. With the whole lockdowns and, you know, I don't know how much you want to get into or not in, get into that because a lot of people are like, let's let's uh, <laughs> let's skim past that and jump onto something else. But I mean, literally, you you had um, various safe, effective. Um, massive amounts of data behind them, treatments mm -hmm. for respir respiratory illnesses like hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, vitamin D, going in the sun, not wearing a mask, etc. Yes. Yeah, and that was all completely shut down, mm -hmm. and it was injections only. Otherwise, you're killing granny, disrespecting World War Two veterans, and destroying the NHS. Yeah, it's crazy. It is. Because, you know, especially when you, as I guess, you know, you the, the way you're approaching things is is to actually to try to be effective in improving somebody's life, quality of concerns, issues, injuries, whatever, rather than just saying, well, it's, they come in with this, I prescribe that and I get paid. You're actually saying, well, they come in with this, what can I actually do about that? How can I actually improve things? Yeah, I think I think it's really we're in a we're in a we're in a weird place at the moment where it is very difficult to 
to do the right thing. And there is um, a lot of a lot of kind of blowback and potential legal issues and professional issues. I mean, I'm a I'm an optometrist for my day job, so you know it's it's not quite so difficult and restrictive because it's a much more it's a much narrower field. But often, you know, everyone I see effectively, I'm asking them a brief medical history um and i mean every, every day every day that i that i see patients somebody will come in and tell me you know they've just been diagnosed as diabetic or whatever and i might just ask them kind of casually about their diet and they'll say oh yeah you know i've cut out i've cut out all the fats and i'm just having breakfast cereal and skimmed milk and, and i'm like this is going to kill you. Mm-hmm. This is, you're just eating sugar for breakfast yep. and probably lunch and probably dinner. And I'll ask them, you know, did you, what did the GP say? Oh, they, you know, they, they gave me this little leaflet that had something in it or I'm going to see a nurse in a six months time or something. Mm. It's, it's, it's completely the wrong way around, right? Rather than looking at the, the root causes for things and trying to make those kinds of adjustments, which are not easy to make, right? Changing the way you eat is really difficult yeah it may be it may be a simple concept mm. but actually trying to not eat that stuff that you like and eat that stuff that you don't think you like and changes your you know your gut bacteria to get used to different food and all of that stuff yeah it's very difficult so i, I would assume then your your kind of um your treatment and your um consultation with with patients is much more holistic than in terms of kind of diet and lifestyle and sleep and and other stuff but how how does how is that different to um what you would have been doing just as a chiropractor i mean what 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 additional kinds of modalities do you use i think the the problem with the regulation as i see it is that it's uh limiting the utilization of your expertise and there's a pressure on on chiropractors to fix people really quickly and then if they don't fix people really quickly to refer them somewhere else um and the problem with that is that in in certain uh conditions that people suffer with that are related to back pain the data shows that chiropractic is more effective than the other alternatives so who do you refer to if you don't get someone well in a certain time frame? You know, because we're all different. Some people need more time uh, to get better. And, and the reason I got into nutrition and stress uh, management and exercise and stuff like that is, you know, there are people that will come to see you that are open to changing their life to be healthy. And um, you need to have that conversation with them because sometimes they don't get better. And it's not that what you're doing is not is not working. You're doing the same thing that you would do on another person. The other person got better. So what's the difference between these two people? Well, it's the lifestyle they choose to lead. lead. You know, I, if you live a life where you uh, limit your ability to repair yourself or heal, or be healthy, then someone needs to sit down with you and have a serious conversation about that because it is affecting your long-term health, right? Um, and I don't want to be restricted from doing that. You know, I don't want to be restricted from saying that sugar is not good for you. You should probably eat more animal fat because it's important. This, these sorts of conversations need to be had. And we need to get off this, uh, this restriction 
of information that is happening right now. Yeah, I mean, it's there's there's a there's a, but I, I don't know whether you feel the same way that I, I certainly have been feeling more recently, is that we're it's like the gatekeepers of the kind of the the truth. Mm. It seems like they're they're struggling to hold the gate. You know, it's it, it's it, you can see that it's kind of the 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 narratives that are put out are starting to, to break down. I think because of the, the kind of access to information and the difficulty with, you know, it's like the putting your fingers in the dam, right? You know, they, they, somebody says something and they go, oh, that's nonsense, we fact-checked it, look, and then the water comes out somewhere else and there's another finger and there's another finger. And it feels to me like there's more and more people are starting to kind of just have that realisation of you know what, pretty much everything we've been told is not right. Mm. And it's quite an easy explanation, which is these people make a lot of money out of it and hold a lot of power because of it, and they, they don't want to relinquish it. There's nothing to do with with health or, or anything else. It's just kind of wanting to, to remain in control of the the status quo. I don't know whether you feel that that we are winning. Yeah, I think the signs that we're winning in the sense that I think less and less people are watching the media, uh, the old established media, and they're starting to look at, uh, you know, people like Russell Brand, for example, and Joe Rogan, um, and there's lots of others as well. And maybe we could call it the new media. I'm not sure I want to associate it with the media, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it is changing. And I think people are understanding that, normal individuals can also have an opinion that is correct. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, this was one of the real kind of um, psychological tools of manipulation is to say, are you an expert? Mm. Are you a scientist? Mm -hmm. Are you a doctor? Well, how can you possibly know? Yeah. You know, if you're not, if you're not qualified and you know, um, peer-reviewed, then you can't possibly know anything. But I, I think certainly my um, my kind of core belief is that we are ultimately supposed to be sovereign, self-reliant, self-sustaining creatures. So everything really comes down to you. I mean, I, 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 w I would think possibly this is this is kind of what you hinting at with the with the kind of uh, the way that you're doing your treatments is that you're kind of saying look you need to sleep properly you need to eat properly you need to exercise properly you need to stop stressing out about this and you know doing all these kind of things that negatively impact your health because ultimately i mean i, th I i'm sure you we would agree that by and large we don't really know how to heal anybody the body heals itself you know we heal ourselves you're just trying to kind of facilitate that mm. trying to get rid of all the the junk that's preventing it from doing that and just allow it to do what what it does i mean i kind of have a like a an internal mantra internal little conversation that i that i have 20 times every day which is your body can heal itself it doesn't matter what happens. Something happens. I hurt my knee, or I don't feel well, or this or that. Like your body can heal itself. You just need to keep 
you know, reinforcing that program, it will it will heal itself. It will heal itself. You just got to allow it to 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 do that. Um, yeah, really, really, really um, interesting to 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 look at it from that point of of everybody does have their own kind of power and their own voice, even though you know we are constantly told that we don't. Um, we do, and and maybe that's actually even a, a sort of a lesson and a crossover from jujitsu, because this was this was kind of one of the things that I'd mentioned to you on the when we were chatting on the text, is that I think jujitsu really teaches you that kind of self reliance, you know, because it's you on the mat with someone else. Like, it doesn't matter what what you just got shown or you just got taught or this works for that or whatever. It's like Go on then, do it. Mm. See whether it works. You know, this is the escape from underside control. Yeah, is it? Yeah. <laughs> if you if you end up over there and that guy's over there, it is. Mm-hmm. If he's still on top of you at the end of three minutes, it isn't. Yeah. You're not doing it right. So so yeah, I think I think um, jujitsu maybe maybe does kind of teach us that that lesson. Mm. So when, so how did you come to to jujitsu then? Um, an amazing lack of confidence is what put me uh, into jiu-jitsu. And when did you say it was two, 2000? I, well, I started martial arts earlier than that, um, but I was looking for jiu-jitsu. I, uh, I used to have a really close friend who uh, I used to go uh, nightclubbing with him a lot because, you know, as a racing driver, you just go and drive cars maybe 20 weekends of the year and then the rest of the time is just basically spare time. And you can't exercise all of the time. So you go to nightclubs and chase girls, which is what I did. And I had a, this friend who was basically Samuel L. Jackson on steroids. And he was, you know, the stereotypical um, black man. And women would chase him and guys wanted to fight with him. And he was like, the most peaceful guy you could imagine a really nice guy very philosophical very gentle but people wanted to fight him all the time so he got really good at fighting and i would get into situations with him that he didn't start but he had to finish them and i started to get a bit scared because i knew in those situations i'm going to get a, a big <laughs> hiding right and he's not he, he'd be too busy to save my ass so i i wanted to learn martial arts and he showed me a video called choke with hicks and gracie i think we've all seen it and i was i've got to learn that so as you do i started with aikido (laughs) which is nothing like jiu-jitsu and then i went to japanese jiu-jitsu which is again not much like brazilian jiu-jitsu and then eventually i saw an advert in martial arts illustrated for a brazilian jiu-jitsu academy in, in birmingham and so I started going there. Where, where were you living at the time? In Milton Keynes. Okay. So, um, so up to Birmingham is what, like an hour and yeah, hour and a half? hour and 20 minutes. Hour and 20. Three times a week. It's quite, yeah. a, quite a journey. It was worth it. Yeah. Yeah. It was worth it. That's, that's where I met Mauricio. And he's the real deal. I don't know if you've ever trained with him. But. Uh, I've, I've done like some sort of seminars in passing right. kind of stuff. I haven't actually yeah. trained properly with him. Okay. 
it's it's worth having a private with him just to get really really badly smashed by someone yeah who i don't know he's got a unique ability to smash things i mean i get badly smashed in normal class oh it's <laughs> yeah so do i but it's like mauricio's extra smashy I it's think like you, that kind of old school oh pressure God. horrible his, pressure his pressure's horrible he, there was one time I trained with him and I was on the bottom for an hour and it took me two weeks to recover. I was physically ill. My students still laugh about it because I was so ill for two weeks. He just destroyed me. He, he has an ability inside control just to find pressure that no one else could find. It's like he's got a different set of gravitational laws following him around. And his knee on belly pressure is disgusting. Uh, yeah, so... I was fortunate to, to start jiu-jitsu with him. And it's very addictive because you've got a, a character who's incredibly strong and really knows what he's doing. He's really uh, refined his, yeah, I mean, he, his he, ability he to do jiu-jitsu. Roger, right? Yeah, I think he had a huge part to play in Roger. Roger's had a lot of amazing influence. Um, but Mauricio, obviously, is a big influence. So how, how old were you when you started training? I think I was 27. Okay, so just yeah. kind of coming off the back of the, the motor racing. Yeah, I, I started uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in October 1998, and I joined the academy in November 1998. And then, and then three times a week up there for over years, just consistent? Three times a week for a year, because then Mauricio went back to Brazil. Right. Yeah. And what, what, where did you train after that? I continued with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Just but kind it, of doing your own? Yeah. Thing. There was a brown belt that took over for him, uh, from him for a year, um, but it's not the same. You know, you got one of the best black belts on the planet down to a brown belt is a big difference. Mm. Even though brown belts are, can be amazing, and he, he was amazing. Marcus was a good guy, but it's not the same as someone who's at the level that Mauricio was at. Yeah, and still is at. So did you? Did you? Was that still up in uh, Birmingham where you were? Yeah, where you were training. They, yeah. they, they, this other guy just took over the, the, the club, the class. Yeah, he took over when Mauricio went back. And so then, and so, have you have you been consistently trained all the way through from then? Yeah, I didn't have an instructor, but I went to university and uh, I started teaching jiu-jitsu as a white belt, so that I could carry on doing it. Did you get get a busy class there? No, oh. <laughs> but there was enough guys that I could carry on. Rolling. Yeah, you just need a few people to roll with, right? Yeah. And do, do any of those guys still train? You in touch with any of them? Or um, I don't think so. Yeah, you didn't have the you didn't have the correct influence over them. No, as I definitely a, as a didn't. White belt. I definitely didn't. And so, so what was the next sort of proper club that you found in? Um, I came off the uni. I joined the Gracie Baja in in Mil uh, Newport Pagnell, Milton Keynes. Okay. When I came back, and I stayed there for a, a couple of years. Um, and Browley used to teach there. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel kind of um, not hard done by, but I, you know, I was, I was aware of jiu-jitsu, you know, that, around that sort of time, 98, 2000, whatever, but just never found anywhere to train. Always kind of wanted to train because I watched UFC 1. Yeah. And I already was doing other martial arts. But I never, I never actually found anywhere to train until... Um, I can't even remember when it was. It must have been maybe like 20, 2010 or 20, 2008, something like that. Um, 
a friend of mine found um, Eddie Cohn was teaching in Dalston and just called me one day and said, Hoist Gracie's coming to teach a seminar at this jiu-jitsu club. Do you want to come? And I was like, yeah. And that was my first jiu-jitsu lesson. But I kind of, you know, everyone else who I've had on, who I've spoken to, the kind of old school people like Rob Connor, mm-hmm. um, David Anuma, Jude Samuel had on the other day, you know, all kind of have this similar thing of either starting at the Budokai and then going to Mauricio's or starting with Mauricio, you know, that, that kind of funnel. Seems like everyone who's been training in the UK for a while kind of came through that same same kind of pattern. Mm. So that, that, that kind of um, style of jiu-jitsu was maybe a little bit different to how it is now. Was a little bit more kind of old schooly, pressury, slow, grinding kind of passing. It's 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 evolved a lot. Have you noticed a change? Yeah, there's been a huge change in jiu-jitsu, definitely. But I still think that what was working then still works today. Um, I just think that there's been a bit of faith lost in the old school stuff. And people don't do it as much. And if you don't do it a lot, it doesn't work as effectively for you. And I think you can still watch people that do the old school stuff being extremely effective with it. And you watch people doing the new stuff and they're really extremely effective with it. And sometimes when you mix the styles, uh, you'll see the guy who is better at getting the other guy to play his game winning, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, someone might be good at... uh, Berenbolos, but if you prevent them from doing Berenbolos and force them to play your game and, it, you know, they're playing to your strengths, then um, you, you, you can see people winning with anything, really, if you can force someone to play what you like to play. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think for me, the, the most impressive um, aspect of jiu-jitsu is the pressure. Mm-hmm. You know, when you, when you kind of feel like, I am just stuck here, like I've... I've got no options. My only option is try to keep breathing, hope something doesn't crack and Mm. just wait for this guy to do what he wants to do because I'm going nowhere. You know, I like to watch the kind of, um, the, the, the newer school stuff with the rolling and the leg locks and this and that. I mean, it's, it, it looks very impressive to, to, to watch. And it, and it certainly is probably more kind of, um, spectator friendly and more internet friendly i mean you know we've we've kind of moved into this age of short attention spans when yeah you want to see you roll three times and end up taking the guys back while you're still on your mobile phone that's super cool i'm going to share that Mm. whereas a three minute pressure pass where you can't they look like they both went to sleep it doesn't it doesn't look impressive but when you feel it yeah it's like wow i mean i i I, I can still and I've, i've talked about this a lot of times i still can remember seeing initially people under side control and just thinking like, why is, I don't understand why the bottom guy doesn't just stand up. Mm. And then the first time someone cross faces you and you're like, oh, this is like magic. <laughs> like, you know, you, I could die here and no one will know. Like you wouldn't even see what happened. You just feel like, oh my God, I'm completely exposed here. I think, but I think, you know, that's, that's a bit like what you were saying with, with your, uh, your class with uh, Mauricio is that if you're like a jiu-jitsu person, 
like that's the moment at which you realize like this is amazing i need to learn it whereas mm. other people probably have the experience this is horrendous i'm never coming back again yeah but but if you're like a jujitsu person you're like okay this i gotta i gotta figure out what he just did because that felt you know insane yes so so do, do you still play that kind of pressure game more than the, the newer stuff have you tried to kind of assimilate all the crazy rolling around yeah, I try to assimilate it. Um, <laughs> How successful is that? <laughs> um, yeah, well, the thing is, like, I, I've experienced Mauricio squashing me to the point where my soul is broken uh, and where you just want to tap out. You, you know? You've yeah. probably been there yourself, right? Yeah, yeah. You're in bottom side or something like that and you just want to give up because it's, it's horrendous. And I, that's the, the thing that I want to do myself in jiu-jitsu. Um, I want to take the other guy's will to live because that's what was done to me. Yeah. So I don't necessarily look for early submissions. I like to control and wait and then wait for mistakes to start to happen to get the submissions. So I like that aspect of it and that's very old school. Um, but then if you want to beat people that play that game, Generally, you have to move away from that. And I, I started, I moved away by looking at 10th Planet. So I got really into 10th Planet in sort of uh, 2007, 2008. And it, I met a lot of resistance with my instructor at the time. It wasn't Mauricio, it was another guy. Um, and it was all like, you mustn't do that, you mustn't do that. And I kept doing it. And it started to work. Um, and the reason I had to do it is because if I played their game, I would lose every single time. You, you've got to play a different game. So was that kind of no gi or you were adapting that for gi? I was adapting it for gi. Um, and I was, I was starting to catch some pretty good people at blue. And I was blue and purple and they were like brown and black. So because the, I was playing an alternative game. Was, was kind of rubber guard type of thing? Rubber guard didn't really work for me that much, but there's other things in the 10th planet system that have really worked for me really well. So um, I, I struggle with rubber guard and I think most people will struggle with, with rubber guard unless they decide that they're just going to go down that route. But I wasn't that kind of player. I think I think maybe I, I guess the, the better you are at it, the, the, the less so. But I think it's a, it's a slightly younger guy's game as well. Definitely a flexible knees, guy's game. back. Yeah, knees yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, kind of, you know, now even when I kind of look at some of that stuff, I just, my knee hurts just watching it. <laughs> you know, I just think I'm not going to, don't want someone trying to posture out of that with my knee in that position. If you get it wrong, yes, they're taking your, your shin with them. Oh, that's what happened to me. Right. Yeah. Playing that, that uh, 10th planet kind of. I was setting up a truck entry. Right. With a, with a really big, strong guy, and he spazzed out to, to get out of it, and my knee went. Yeah. And so when, that was back at like Blue Belt or whatever? That was, I was purple at the time, and it was around 2014. And what, what happened to your knee? I dislocated it. Right. Um, it reduced so that I could walk on it on the way out, and you know, when you were younger, I was um, mid-40s, you recover somewhat yeah. faster than you do when you're 50 
So I thought, yeah, it's not too bad. Um, but then like a year later, I was getting problems in my other knee, um, which I didn't dislocate or injure, but then it became dislocatable. So it was like one injury transferred from one side of the body to the other because of the mechanics of how I was walking and all this kind of stuff. And, yeah. Um, don't ask me to explain how that that moves from one to the other, but it definitely did in my case. So then I started to have problems in both my knees and it got to the point where they were dislocating regularly. Like they were more dislocated than they were located. Wow. Yeah. Well, so this probably is, naturally segues us into talking about your knees. Yeah. Which is what uh, Danny mentioned that... Um, we should talk about yeah so so i i, I don't know whether I, i'm remembering this correctly but he said that you couldn't squat for a long time because of your knees and then over the last year yeah through doing whatever you guys have been doing you've been able to, to squat how much such a fairly decent amount yeah well i couldn't squat 60 kilos when i started with danny yeah and uh now i i did my personal best last week uh, 132 and a half kilos. So, so, tell me about the year. What 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 happened over this year? He just got me squatting. <laughs> he, Danny, identified what I couldn't do, right? And then he forced me to do it, which was uh, squatting, um, flexing my knees, really flexing them. So, what, like with a stiff leg kind of thing? You mean? Uh, no, bending the knee to oh, an extreme. Right. I had a very limited range of motion at the oh, knee. Okay, both of them. So, but was that kind of like loaded or unloaded? You were just sitting there bending your leg? Uh, most of the work in the early stages was fairly unloaded. And it was more sort of, felt more like uh, cardio-orientated work. And then as, as the motion came back into my knees um, and my ability to squat was improving without load, Danny started to put loads on. And So would this be, be initially kind of like body weight? squatting and lunging and things like that just to to kind of open everything up yeah most of the work was like that and rot rotation of the knee and flex flexion of the knee and stuff like that just to get motion back into the knee and so how many how many sessions a week were you doing just two and and then your normal so were you doing normal gym stuff as well i was doing normal jiu-jitsu stuff and then jiu-jitsu yeah and then a couple of sessions of Yes. And that was just literally focused around the knees. Yeah. Were you doing like a lot of other like hip stuff and ankle flexion and things or just literally sort your knees out? No, there was a lot of hip hip stuff and, and ankle stuff related to the knee. So, I mean, Danny's got a very good ability to, to look at you and see where your deficiencies are and try to build strength into those deficiencies. That's definitely been my experience of, of training with him. Mm. And I think that he, he's really good. He's like a savant in that, in that area. Um, and, you know, the results speak for themselves. Um, I'm still, my knees are still getting better. So I've still got issues with them. Yeah. But they're not dislocating anymore. They haven't dislocated in like four months, um, which is incredible because I would just teach a class and my, my knees would dislocate you know, doing simple stuff like putting someone in the guard. So so, so maybe like six, seven months in, stop dislocating, into kind of doing the, it's a, the programming. It's about 18 months with Danny, so... Um, okay, so maybe like a year in then. For just over real... a year, yeah. Things really, really changed in my knees. 
Amazing. And and um, so when, when did you, how far in before you started squatting with weight? Probably about three months in, I was starting to squat with some decent, decent kind of weight. Barbell back squat on your yeah, on, on and your front shoulders. squats, yeah. And front squats. Yeah. And are you squatting like full range of motion or are you doing kind of different stuff? Um, I'm. Well, when I, when I do squat, I have to squat all the way as far down as I can go. Danny right. won't accept anything else. And if I do a, like a, a, a cowardly squat, he'll make me do it again. He won't so that's 132 it. and a half, like right down to the floor. Yeah. It's yeah. Quite impressive. I don't know. There's a there's a guy that used to train with me who would warm up with that weight. Yeah, I know, <laughs> so, but I mean, you know, Ronnie Coleman used to warm up probably with 200 kilos, but now he can't move. No, poor guy. Yeah, He's yeah. Like, I mean, but it's, it's, it's it, I guess it's it's always your own. I mean, like again, I've talked about this ad nauseum on the on the show, but I don't know whether you did you see either of the I haven't seen the newest one, but the two Spider Man movies, the Into the Multiverse or whatever it's mm -hmm. called. You know, I always kind of feel like you've got ten or fifty or hundred or two different versions of yourself, and that's that's all you're ever going to compare against. Mm -hmm. Comparing to your mate who warms up with 130 kilos is you're on a hiding to nowhere. You know, you you're you're just comparing yourself to the the you who didn't do the rehab, the you who never got an injury, you know, da, 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 it's just different versions of you. And you're trying to be one where when you get into the multiverse movie, you're like, no, this is quite a cool version of me. I'm kind of happy with this one. Might not be the super, super best one, but ain't the fat, lazy, sits at home eating, you know, Doritos all day one either. I'm kind of I'm doing all right. <laughs> so, you know, if you go from not being able to... to to even squat to 130 odd kilos do you ever do you ever have you got a target for what you want to what you want to hit or you just keep training yeah well this guy i used to train with who i mentioned uh, who warms up with 130 kilos uh he, he was doing one rep maxes at 180 kilos and uh, i think that would be a realistic target he was 85 kilos body weight just that, how much you uh i'm 84 okay so yeah but he's much younger than me so yeah, you know yeah. 22 years old yeah but still it's a i've got something to aim for yeah you that's do. what i'm gonna aim for yeah you need a you need a target i can do a one rep max at 180 that would be really good yeah that's that's heavy and so are you are you like deadlifting and benching heavier weights as well as a result of being able to squat heavier or you're not really pushing other lifts? I hardly do anything else. I, I do uh, like clean and press and stuff like that and uh, pull-ups. But we've re really focused on the bottom half of the body. And have you, have you, how have you found that sort of transfer into your jiu-jitsu? It's made it so much better. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's no fun doing jiu-jitsu and being weak and tired. And I was weak and tired. Like, I would, I would roll with people that I could technically beat, but then lose because I was absolutely fucked after two minutes. Mm. And that's no fun at all. Yeah, so it's kind of energized the, your, your jiu-jitsu. Yeah. And how often are you guys um, training up there at the academy? Are you, are you teaching kind of every day? Yeah, I teach six classes a week. So, and then there's other guys teaching as well. I've got Eddie, you know, who you've interviewed. Ingemels. Uh, oh, um, open corner. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He teaches. 
We've got a guy called Tom who teaches, and Ed Ingemels comes once a month. Yes, as well. Yes. So. Yeah, so that's quite a good, um, quite a good uh, rotation. So, so um, yeah, Eddie Goff did he started with you? He did. Yeah, so yeah. that's because he was he was talking about obviously walking in for the first time, and that, so that was at your place. Yes. Yeah, because that makes sense now because the way he was describing it, your unit's kind of quite long, kind of rectangular, right? Yes. And the way he was kind of, I was visualizing it like he was kind of looking down a down a corridor yeah yeah that was that was your place yeah so how's he how's he going with the with the open corner i haven't spoken to him recently i think he's doing really well and he's he's a good designer and he's coming out with some really good gear as well i'm, I'm quite excited about his gear so i think he's 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 growing something yeah yeah because he because he um when he was on he I was I was trying to kind of push him for when he was going to go live, and I think in the end he said you know he was going to kind of aim for end of October. So uh, I don't know whether that's whether that's still going to happen, but really really good project, mm. really kind of a um, very I don't know altruistic's the wrong word, but you know just just a really nice way to to kind of approach the whole jujitsu thing is just to, to try to 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 make it available for people that it's not really uh, available for. Yeah. Are you, are you, I'm assuming you guys are kind of signed up with his, with his thing. Yeah. Have you, have you had anybody, has he put anybody in to, to you guys yet? Not yet. Not yet. But hopefully, uh, if you're listening to this, Eddie, hopefully yeah. from, uh, and I think, I think he said, uh, I think he said Halloween or uh, bonfire night or something like that. So, and, end of october beginning of november so you you're the academy you opened 2016 that's right and how how did that happen and how's that how's it changed over the last seven seven years well we opened it with nick okay and uh did you did you have kind of, kind of students that were ready to go when you opened or you just kind of like opened the door, put a mat down and said, who wants to come and train? It was me and Nick and a lot of private classes with Nick to begin with. Right. And like, you know, people were filtering in slowly and uh, getting almost one-to-one -one access with Nick, which is amazing. So did you, did you kind of advertise and social media and stuff? How did you, how did you promote the club? Uh, we advertised on social media, yeah. Just Facebook, basically. Okay, so like a kind of proper targeted. I want this group of people and, and whatever. And how long did it take for you to to kind of see results from that? After a year, we had about forty members. Oh, yeah, not bad. No, it was okay. Yeah, um, we went through some problems and we lost all of our members, oh. and then uh, we got them back, and we're around sixty now. So. What, it, how, how, how did you lose everyone? Or I'm is not going to talk about that. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Sorry. So, so up to sixty regulars, and are you yeah. are you guys uh, adults and kids there? Yeah, mostly adults, but there are okay, a few kids. So got kids program as well. Yeah, and you got um, you got a, a young lady there who I see her doing crazy wrestling stuff. Yeah, we do. What's her name? Ortilia. Ortilia. Yeah. Yeah, she's she's a specimen, right? Yeah, I see her doing some she is. flips on her head and I, wrestling she, stuff. She she's on a on a different level athletically. Yeah, yeah. Did you did you ever train with Lubo? 
No, I didn't, but he's got an amazing <laughs> reputation. So, so um, if anyone, anyone who's listening to this who hasn't trained with Lubo or hasn't trained with a, a real high-level wrestler, um, I think it was Romanian, right? Um, and I think he was kind of national level, maybe international level Romanian squad. And he, Nick brought him to Mill Hill a few times on a, when I was there on a Sunday, I did, I did this kind of same seminar with him, I think like three times. And this guy just physically would do things that literally I would just be looking at him and just thinking, I'm I'm gonna get injured or be sick just watching. Mm. Like his his like neck warm up stuff was insane. And his I don't know what what her her neck is like. Ortilia is that her name? Yeah. I don't know what her neck looks like, but his neck was like featureless. Like a you know you remember those um, stretchy like Incredible Hulk toys? Mm-hmm. It looks like that. It's it's just like a lump of some kind of substance there's no veins there's no nothing and it just it's like twice the size of a normal neck but it bends in all directions like equally Mm. so he would he would do like these kind of little headstand and then you just kind of flip over and i was like okay i can't do that but that makes sense to me and then he would start doing these things where he would sort of like put his head on the floor, the top of his head, and then just walk his legs, you know, like all the way around, say forwards, backwards, forwards, go the other way, go this way. And his neck would be bent like at a right angle, sideways, and then, you know, backwards and all, go this way, go that way. And I just remember thinking like, this is, this is like not a natural, not a natural way for a body to move. And then... Once you would get into the actual takedowns, like single leg, double leg or whatever, and you'd just... The, and there was there would always be... Because Nick would put it out, oh, this Lubo, this guy, Lubo's coming down to teach wrestling, really high level, people should come. There would always be someone who turned up who was like a big lump of a guy. You know, 100 kilos, 95 kilos, whatever, big sort of muscly guy who would kind of have not not had been taken down properly before and would kind of ask questions oh yeah i don't I, you know like if you get my leg what happens like if i just keep my posture or whatever and then lubo was like 70 kilos yeah and then you do by the second like seminar it was always like okay this is gonna be good and he would just launch people yes like launch them yeah. it's, it's it's incredible yes and she, she, is she the same? I've yeah. seen a few of the little training videos of her. Yeah, she is the same. She does all those warm-ups that you talk about. I mean, she, she was on the Olympic team for wrestling and her physical ability is just ridiculous. It's like she, she comes to class and she wants to roll with me a lot because presumably I'm the biggest challenge as she sees it. I don't think that's true, but <laughs> she might see it that way. And she's just trying to, she wants to smash me all the time. And I use jiu-jitsu on her, you know, and as much pressure as I can, make her life as miserable as possible. But it doesn't break her. She just wants to come back and do it again. Um, and, you know, I get tired after 45 minutes and she doesn't. And that's, that's a big difference. I weigh 20 kilos more. I, I don't know. It's, it's, I mean, that res- I think that wrestling training as well, that's kind of high, high level when they're younger... 
it, it, it seems to me kind of a bit like um, ballerinas. You know, it's just like the training is so hardcore that coming in for a jiu-jitsu class for a couple of hours is like, it's kind of not even a thing. So easy to mentally and physically to get through. I'll tell you how hard it is. She told me this uh, once that when she made mistakes at competition, her coach would beat her afterwards, you know. Uh, so that, that that shows you the difference in level and 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 she loves his, her coach. You know? Yeah, I mean it's She's different. Be- it's a different intensity, right? They oh, have a different, different way of 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 approaching things. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Which which then you know once you get to train in normal environments with normal in inverted commas people, is it is just kind of easy, I guess. Yeah. Definitely. So does she teach or she's, she's just training with you guys? No, she teaches for us. So um, she's teaching kind of wrestling-y, yes. takedown, that kind of yeah. stuff. Her takedowns are amazing. Yeah, I mean, I've seen some little videos just of her kind of like ankle picks and kind of low singles and stuff. And it's just, it's like watching a cat. Mm. You know, it's, she's so kind of precise and delicate and yeah, really, it's really impressive to... To watch, and you know, you can see as well. It's kind of, it's gentle, but, but not. She's, Very she's never, yeah, she's never sort of like bashing into people. No, it's just like once I get your foot, you're going on your back like this. Yeah. End of conversation. Yeah. 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 Really good. So, how long has she been training jujitsu? She started training jujitsu seriously about three months ago. Oh, okay. So yeah. with you guys, that was a beginning of, of jiu-jitsu. Yeah. So was she still training wrestling over here? Yeah, she she was coming to our academy to wrestle our jiu-jitsu guys. And she would just, you know, take them down, stand back up and, and repeat it again. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, I, I managed to convince her that there's some merits to jiu-jitsu as well. You know, what happens when you do get to the floor. And uh, so she started to do jiu-jitsu and I think she's starting to enjoy it and she's she's getting good at it as well. Yeah, it's a great base to come from, right? Oh, to, to, yeah. To, to feel like, okay, as long as we're standing up, I'm going to win that exchange. Yeah. And then it's just, I guess, trying to achieve a dominant position at the takedown that she wants mm. and then and then work through from there. Yeah, so it's a, it's a lovely base to come from. I had um, Graham Welsh on um, recently, who's from a judo, high-level judo background, and kind of the same, the same thing with him. And you know, if it, when he he comes and and trains at uh, resistance quite often on a Wednesday, and it's it's pretty much you know if you if I look around the mat, whoever he's he's training with is the same kind of thing. It's like if it's standing, you're at a disadvantage. Yeah, you're probably going to get thrown or tripped, or you know, you're better to try to to get to the mat. But then. You know, if you get to the mat underneath a wrestler or underneath a good judo player, that's not it's not that much better. You kind no. of saved yourself an embarrassment on the way down, but you're <laughs> not really not really in a better spot once you get there. Yeah, yeah, the same pressure can be applied. Judo guys have enormous pressure. Yeah, incredibly strong. Yeah, incredibly. That I mean, Graham particularly, you know, sort of stands out for me when when I train with him. But you know, when he when he gets a grip you just feel like when you were a kid you know and like that the games teacher grabbed you for arguing in the playground and you're like okay i'm not i'm not getting away from the games teacher right he's just going to hold on to my jumper until i behave myself 
and 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 the thing as well that I find, I, I guess at least with wrestling, because we have a we have a very good wrestler who trains with us at Resistance called Ben, uh, Iranian guy, um, is that he he will put me on my back quite quickly and quite sort of effectively, whereas with Graham, once he grabs me, like I can't even pull guard. Right. I'm like. Well, I just have to wait and see like what he wants to do with me because his posture's so good. Yeah. That once he's got the grips he wants, if I try to pull guard, I literally sometimes I can't get my back to the mat. Mm -hmm. I will I will try to pull guard and then I'm just hanging in the air, and he's just kind of standing there looking at me, and then he's like, okay, look, I'll I'll put you down, and then I'll do what I was going to do anyway. But it's um yeah it's uh it's uh it's an impressive um skill set. To, to have that standing game. I think I think it's something that you maybe you don't have to, but it's better if you train it from when you're young. I think the stand-up is, is hard to learn when you're older, especially the judo. I mean, it's very kind of technical to to the, the hips and the, the, the off-balances and stuff. I, I, I think at a, at a fundamental level, a couple of wrestling takedowns are easier to learn than some decent judo throws. I don't yeah. know whether you would agree with no, that. No, I'd agree with that. So yeah. do you, if you, when, when you guys are, sp are sparring, are you guys always starting from standing? Are you playing sometimes standing, sometimes you just start from the mat? Do you try to get your guys always standing up? We're probably 60% from standing. And and are you, are you pushing them to, to not to pull guard or you, just kind of everything's part of the game? No, I, I personally, I think the, the thing that makes jiu-jitsu jiu-jitsu is the guard um, because it's unique to jiu-jitsu. Judo guys don't do it. Wrestlers don't do it. Kickboxers don't do it, right? So if, if we pull guard, we need to be really good at that with those other guys because that's our element of advantage to go to a place where they have never been before. Mm. Um, obviously there's a lot more to the game than just being good at guard, but I think it's something that we've probably stopped doing enough of. Yeah, it's kind of frowned upon, isn't it? It's like, oh, guard pullers, you know, but actually I, I, I at my much more basic level of, of jujitsu than yours is, but I, that, that's, that's one of the things that I'm very, um, aware of is, yeah, the, the guard is the unique part of Brazilian jujitsu. Yeah. That is the that is where you you are at potentially your best advantage because that's your go-to kind of foundation which other people don't have. If you're not used to training Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you, you don't know what to do from there. You kind of get stuck. Exactly. Yeah. And so do you guys are you yourself and in terms of what you're teaching do you, do you, do you favor closed guard or open guard or you, both? You know, it's weird with with uh with Brazilian jiu-jitsu guys, I don't play guard much. I like to play bottom side control and I like to convert that into lockdowns from 10th Planet. Um, so I, I play that way with jiu-jitsu guys, but with people that don't do jiu-jitsu, I will pull guard because you know they don't know what passing is and all that kind of stuff. But the jiu-jitsu guys know how to pass and they know what guard is, so... Um, oh, interesting. So, yeah. but, so you, so do you allow the takedown, or you allow the other guy to 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 start to take that top side position? Um, how do you had? What's your entry into getting bottom side? 
I, I will force them to put me on my side, on my back, sorry, and then uh, I'll allow them to get into side control. Proper and I, side control? Yeah. I like to work from... Well, it's, I don't let it be pop, a proper side control because then it's not working for me. But I mean, like, the, the you you wouldn't snag a leg. You, they're actually properly on, on side and you work back to, to taking a leg again. Yeah, I look at controlling the weak arm, which is the arm that's orientated at the leg side. So I'm looking to put four limbs against that one arm by turning away from my opponent. I mean, the thing, the, the guy that really opened my eye to that was Nick because I, I remember uh, the first time I met him, I, I got side control on him and then he choked me out. And I was like, hang on a minute. <laughs> you were losing and now I'm choked out. So he kind of opened my eye to that. And then uh, you, you can look at 10th Planet as well. There's some guys there like Jeremiah Vance that's got really some pretty nasty techniques from bottom side control. You know, he t he's converting into victories in MMA and stuff like that. So uh, you're probably familiar with buggy chokes and, yeah. and fly traps and all that kind of stuff. They're horrible if you get caught in those things. So I think, you know, we, we accept the dogma that we need to be in certain positions in jiu-jitsu uh, and then we throw out the baby with the bathwater because there's some submissions from certain positions um, that we completely ignore sometimes just to get to certain uh, certain positional advantages may not even be an advantage uh, with people that know how to play there. So people tend to let their guard down and relax more when they're in top side control. And sometimes that makes them vulnerable to making a mistake. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, it's if I, if, if, I guess if you think about, um, like a jiu-jitsu match or round, like as a journey. So, you know, you've, you, you'd have certain kind of landmarks along the way, and that's definitely one of them. When you get to top side, you're like, I'm winning. Yes. Like, um, I, now I just have to decide, to, am I going to attack from here? Or am I going to try to progress to neon belly or mount or back or something? But yeah, you, you, you probably do maybe maybe allow yourself a little bit too much self-congratulations. Look at me, I got here. You and can do. Where you're, where you can be vulnerable, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's possible. Yeah. So, 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 just, just following on from the, from this kind of side control and under side control. Just, um, 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 just to to kind of solidify it more. You you said like you're kind of looking for that lockdown position, but would you sometimes you you're attacking from there without worrying about the leg too much as well? So it's like buggy chokes and this this yeah, kind um, of stuff. So here's the thing: what don't you want in bottom side control? Cross face, cross face or pressure on the diaphragm, right? Those two things. If you turn towards your opponent, you increase cross face potential. Yeah. Yeah. If you lie on your back, you're increasing the diaphragm pressure. Yeah. yeah. So what happens if you turn away? Well, one of the things people are scared of is to give their back, right? But you don't necessarily have to give your back if you control the arm that's by the legs. Okay. So I want to protect my diaphragm and I'm protecting the cross face because I'm turning away from my opponent. And I have two arms to control the arm by the legs and I can uh, um, bring my legs into the game as well. So I've got potentially four limbs against one limb 
and you know there's there's a few submissions from there you've got the bicep slicer which you know a lot of people don't really think about because they're not allowed in competition up to is it brown or black i don't know so there's that there's leg carno which is like a shoulder lock and uh, you have reverse triangle that you can get someone into. Um, there's two chokes. There's a baseball bat choke. Um, and there's sort of like a, a, a neck crank. They're both a bit cranky actually. So again, a bit illegal, um, but, but fun to do when you're just rolling at class. Um, and then you can use your hips as a shield to take the pressure off you. So you can move the hips in towards your opponent and, and block them, sorry, with your hips. Right. So as long as you're observing when you're in danger, you're in quite a strong position from the bomb. And so do, do, you, do you kind of teach that as a, as a mini system, that, that kind of bottom side? Have we you do. got like a little... Yeah, we do, do do that sort of thing. I, I want them to do the conventional stuff and... My students travel around and go to different academies as well, which I think is like very important to get other people's opinions on jiu-jitsu and not just be thinking there's only one way to do stuff. Um, and I want people to think in, in an alternative way. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it, how it's sort of, it's changed very much from that. You can only train at one club. Don't be a creant yeah. kind of philosophy to actually we want you to go and train with other people and go on other mats and see what they're doing and see what we're doing and and how does it work um so so one of the one of the the sort of a question around that then is that that kind of bottom side um game is that would would you have a different um philosophy for competition slash against really competitive guys for you where you wouldn't you you would look for a more dominant position or would you would you still say you know in inverted commas that that would be sort of part of your a game to play that underneath game and look for unconventional sort of submissions from that position does it depend who you're training with and what the what the, the what the situation is or can, you would play that anywhere my experience is that every time i've submitted a black belt even when i was a blue belt i i caught a few black belts it was always with something they weren't expecting if you try and go through the front door like there's certain black belts if you try and collar choke them or do a triangle or something like that you're never ever going to get it because they've defended it a million times but if you let them take your back and you uh, ankle lock them for example uh i had a guy who had a, had a body lock on me he was a quite a high level black belt and i got uh i got an ankle lock on him from the body lock and we even argued about what had just happened um because then they're sleeping on those things. You want to, you know, if you, it's it's no good coming at the best guy in the in the dojo with the techniques he's good at. You need to find where he's not good. 
if you want to have a, a consistent chance of beating that person. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm not the best guy at jiu-jitsu. I've, I've got a job, you know, I don't yeah. train all the time. I'm not yeah. a full-time teacher. So I have to look for weaknesses in order to, to get a submission. So coming on to competition, what are your thoughts on whether people should compete, must compete at least once? Do you, do you have a sort of a philosophy on competition as part of jiu-jitsu training, whether it's important, not important, vital, not? No, I came from, a, uh, I left an academy because they insisted that we compete. And that's not, not, that's not my thing at all. If you want to compete, good, you know, do that. That's your thing. If you don't want to compete, it doesn't matter. Jiu-jitsu is for everyone. I'm a busy guy. I do have a job. I have a proper job. So um, I understand the people that want to come to my academy and just do a bit of jiu-jitsu. Like, I argue with Atelia all the time about this because we don't really warm up much, right? And she wants to warm up an hour. She's like, you know, what are you guys doing um, not having a proper warm-up? And I go, well, yeah, I understand where you're coming from, Atelier, because you, you come from the Olympic team and you all had to do warm-ups that lasted an hour, but none of these guys want to do that. They don't even want to do a 10-minute warm-up. And, they, we, you know, when she's there, she does take warm-ups for me and they're great warm-ups, but people are exhausted after five minutes. Yeah, I think that's one of the one of the differences from traditional martial arts to jujitsu classes. Um, is is and uh, you know I did I did kung fu for I don't know, maybe like six seven years you know quite three four times a week, and yeah I mean half the class was a warm up. If it was an hour and a half class, it was forty minutes of you know running and squats and horse stance and this and that and the other, which was great because you know it. it gets you fit and it's the conditioning kind of aspect of it but also I was 18 so it was great I mean now I would be the same if it was a 45 minute warm-up I'm not going to that class Mm. you know five minutes 10 minutes okay that's fine but I would again for me I would much rather as a warm-up just roll really light for 10 minutes you know I find that that's a much more kind of um appropriate way to warm up because you're getting your body used to doing what you're going to be doing and it's useful Mm. you know okay it's great to be able to do a lot of squats or loads of backflips or whatever if if that's something that you're going to incorporate into your your jujitsu but again for most kind of hobbyists it's not is it something to enjoy get a couple of hard rounds at the end of the session you know get a sweat on so so yeah it's um but it is, it, is, it is different to, I think, probably most other martial arts. Most other martial arts are much more formulaic, the way they're taught. There's, do we do this warm-up, and then we do these punches, and then we do this, and then we do this. So, yeah. I mean, jiu-jitsu is, it is a very... It's something that I've been kind of um, examining more recently is, is the fractal nature of everything. And jiu-jitsu is a very fluid martial art and also it's very fluid in the way that it's changing because it's new it's kind of a a version of itself inside of itself so i I think that it probably it does suit brazilian jiu-jitsu in that way that 
you don't necessarily have to do a warm-up or maybe sometimes you will do a warm-up you know kind of depends what's happening because that's that is the nature of the art it's like you making it your own isn't it Mm. people people talk about developing your own game i mean it is a very it is a very artistic martial art very very nice so do, do you guys, if you if you do have uh, people there who are competing, do you do sort of like before, say, Euros or big big comps, do you have any kind of comp prep within your your normal classes or not really? Just say if you're competing and you want to roll more rounds, roll more rounds. Now, we've got some higher-level students that do some comp stuff, um, but I don't generally get involved with that. Um if, if I had more time, I probably would be a lot more involved. In fact, it, I would love to just teach jiu-jitsu full-time, but it doesn't pay any bills. So mm. um, I think that's uh, my weakness as an instructor is probably not serving the guys that want to compete as well as I could do and tailoring my academy more for the people that, that just want to enjoy a bit of jiu-jitsu at the end of the day. But you've got to go with the what's the majority on the mat, haven't you? Otherwise, you will end up, you know, with eight guys that compete a lot and no one else. Yeah. Which is, you know, it doesn't really kind of do anyone any 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 service. And I guess as well, you know, you you certainly what what was happening at Mill Hill was because you got then quite a lot of guys that compete quite a lot and they're getting to purple belt and brown belt and black belt. They can run a a comp program. Yeah, I mean Nick. Nick always did because obviously Nick loved competing. Nick, Nick was you know big on the competition side of things, so so he generally was quite um, active in in doing all that comp stuff. But quite often he would have a a couple of decent brown belts and say, look, can you just do comp rounds? I want to do you know three minute rounds and then a blah blah whatever whatever whatever, and then just trust it to guys that he knows they compete a lot and they they've prepared for a lot of competitions. I mean, I don't, I don't think necessarily that's a bad thing. Because again, you know, with, with, with comp training as opposed to your normal training, with comp training, generally you're not really trying to learn anything new. You're trying to just really refine and get your timing down and get your fitness down with your A game, right? Yeah. The rest of the time is when they want to train with the, the actual instructor to learn new stuff. And see, am I going to incorporate this? Does it feel good? It doesn't feel good. I like it. It fits with that. It fits with this. If you're doing six weeks or eight weeks or whatever before a big comp, you're really just a game, a game, a game. Let me just fix all the little holes I've got in my. So, so you know, I, I, I think from that side, as long as you can get on the mat with yeah. a few other bodies, it's, it's probably all you need. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think comp training is more almost like storyboarding. Like you need to have um, a set sequence of what you want to happen in the match and you want to focus on that. Like you say, just get really good at that and try and get the other guy to play that game and use the other stuff that you've learned if you get into trouble. Yeah, you kind of got a, like a two two prongs, right? The one you want and the one that's there just yeah. in the case. If yeah. it all goes wrong. I mean, I learned a, a really good thing once, and that was that uh, if you find yourself in a position you don't like, um, find your find your way back to a position you do like, right? So that you're always playing off where you're strong. And sometimes, 
you could be in a position that seems to be better, but it's not what you play. So you find yourself into maybe a, what seems to be a weaker position, but it's what you like to play, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think that some of the difficulty with jiu-jitsu, especially when you're learning when at the beginning, is just understanding where to go. Yeah. Go this way or that way, turn this way or that way. You know, you just, it's, it's so kind of um, confusing. So I think, you know, that where you have very simple principles like that they can be actually really powerful i mean the same ed ingemels um said what i think maybe the second time he was on the, the podcast was broadly speaking you can say you you start with no contact and you want to find a route to the back mm. so wherever you are if you're confused or stuck or you're not sure you're trying to get towards the back. That will generally give you a direction of travel. Okay, well, I need to, to get this grip or I need to get that underhook or I need to start moving my hips this way if I'm trying to get to the back. Mm. But I think, I think those, those sorts of things are, 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 are useful. So um, something else that I wanted to ask you about was training as an older athlete. Yeah. What you should or shouldn't be doing? What have you learned? What have you changed? What advice have you got? Because there's a lot of what I noticed. Um, going, I came off Facebook for a few years, and then I went back onto Facebook just because of the podcast, just to try and share the podcast with with more people. And there's like a couple of big groups on there for older jujitsu guys. But there's BJJ over forty, and I think there's I think the other one's called Fifty and Up BJJ, with multiple thousand people in there. White belts, blue belts, yeah. as well as, you know, brown and black belts. But there's guys that are starting out in their 40s, 50s, even 60s, getting a stripe, getting a blue belt. So, so you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of people in our age bracket. What should they be doing or not doing? For me, I think it comes down to recovery. I think you don't lose your strength so much as you lose your ability to recover. So... Uh, you need to have bigger breaks in between hard, hard rolling. And I think you need to, rather than not doing anything, but you just need to learn how to soft roll and, and flow roll. Um, actually, when I went to uh, Gracie Baja in, in uh, Rio in 2000, some of those guys were spending hours and hours on the mats, but they could do that because their rolling was so gentle. It was just all about technique. Um, and I, I wanted to bring that home because in, in the UK at that time, it was just you go as hard as you can on the other guy and that was it. Um, it hasn't changed that much, has it? But, uh, you know, you've got to learn how to uh, allow your body to recover. So that, I think that's the only thing. And what else... Do, do you do you sort of um, recommend anything specifically or stuff that you do in terms of recovery, in terms of diet, cold water, sleep? You know, what 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 does a what does a kind of a good week look like, or should or could or should look like? Uh, personally, I've had to really increase the amount of anti-inflammatories I eat, uh, like turmeric and ginger and garlic and stuff like that. And good animal fats as well uh, tend to be anti-inflammatory. Um, and cut the sugar. Yeah, sugar and uh, any carbohydrate is sugar essentially. So, 
you know, once it's passed through the digestive system, it's it's sugar. So yeah, don't eat that. So you kind of you're kind of on a paleo type of. I'm a non-strict paleo kind of guy. When yeah. I work with um, people, they sometimes have crisps and stuff like that that they stuff around in the drawers at work, and I might eat a few of those crisps. Uh, but I generally try not to eat it because uh, it's going to screw up your metabolism uh, to do that. So, yeah, more time resting and uh, more inf- more inf- anti-inflammatory foods, not, not anti-inflammatory drugs. That's a different thing altogether. Um, I don't know if you've studied aging much, but you get these things called senescent cells that just carry on producing inflammation in your body. So, yeah, I just did uh, the other that. week. I did a four-day fast, water-only fast. Yeah. Um, so I did. I did four and a half days tail end of last year, and I did. I just did four days now, and I'm, my plan now is to do a sort of four to five-day water-only every quarter. Mm. So this this one that I did now was actually surprisingly easy. I didn't. I wasn't hungry. I wasn't tired. I've I mean, I didn't do much. I kind of allow myself like a real, just do nothing. Just just watch kind of Netflix in inverted commas, have a bath, sit around, hang out with the cats. You know, I, don't, I, don't, I didn't train, I didn't do anything. Um, but it was surprisingly, I, I didn't actually want to break it at the end of day four, but because of having to go back to work, I didn't want to break it just when I was going back to work because the toilet side of things takes a little bit of time to settle down i didn't want to shit myself basically at work so i thought right i'll give myself a day (laughs) to shit myself at home before i go back to work um but yeah i mean i i i'm i'm very much you know as i get older i'm 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 acutely aware of just everything kind of not being quite as sort of flexible and fixable as it as it used to be and i I find you know fasting i think is a is a very powerful beneficial is is that something that you you program in with any of your treatment for people or not really fasting no we do i I don't know if you've heard of the gaps diet i have heard the gaps but remind me yeah it's um it's basically a, a paleo diet that starts off by eliminating everything except animal fat. Yes, is it, was it a woman who? Could, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I read, I read all about it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So you do like bone broth and stuff initially. Yeah, like yeah. a week of bone broth. Yes, yes. And yes. then you start to slowly add foods. You listen to yourself, learn what you're sensitive to and what you can tolerate, and then if you're sensitive to something, you stop eating it basically. And that's worked really successfully in our family. Um, so that that's where I would recommend people go, and that's where I recommend my patients do. Yeah, is it, it's probably just gapsdiet.com or something. I'll probably. put a link in the show notes. I did. Yeah. I had it up on my on my on my desktop computer for a, a month. I was kind of you know reading through it and, and looking at it, and it's quite interesting because she, I think she recommends like you can go up to like a year on bone broth basically if you're really sort of severe kind of. Um, uh, uh, ulcerative colitis yeah. and these these kinds of things, yep. and you just literally just introduce one thing at a time. I mean, I think the the famous example is um, Jordan Peterson and yes. his daughter. Right? She yep. she went basically on I think beef 
and sea salt only mm. for two, three months just to, to try to get rid of all the inflammation because she had juvenile arthritis, I think. Yeah. And it pretty much all just went away. Yes. It's quite incredible. Yeah. It's quite incredible because, it, again, it's, it's, it's quite fascinating because you would, you would think that you would want to be eating lots of veggies, but actually, a lot of veggies have a, have poisons in them that we you know we struggle with, right? It's yeah. kind of you'd think, oh, I just get a big bag of everything and bunch of this and a few of those and a few of those. But actually, there's a lot of stuff in there which your body maybe doesn't like. Mm -hmm. And certainly, what I've found getting older is that stuff that I could eat, I can't eat, mm -hmm. and things that were okay now are not okay, and things that you know I didn't have to be concerned with now I I, I feel it. It makes like a you know a stark difference when I eat the wrong thing now where it didn't really used to bother me. So I think you can't even sort of be complacent and say, okay, this is what I can eat and this is what I can't eat because even that kind of changes over time. Yes, it does. It's quite miserable, isn't it, getting older? <laughs> <laughs> Animals taste pretty good. So Animals taste pretty thank good. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, it's a bit, I'm sure it will upset the, the vegans, but the, the, the little joke is that if... Uh, if God didn't want us to eat animals, he wouldn't have made them out of meat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it but you I mean, you do once you tune into your your body and your food and what you're doing, like eating good quality meat feels really sort of empowering. It does. Like if I have a ribeye and all that nice lump of fat in the middle and just kind of mash it all up with my fork and just you feel like this is good for me. Mm -hmm. Has a real sort of fundamental kind of. Well, if you you're an optometrist, right? So you've studied physiology. A long and, time ago. And don't you, ask me anything well, difficult. You know, but the thing <laughs> you know, the thing that we kind of don't really think about is that the foundations of regulation in the body comes from fat. Yes. Right, and it's not vegetable fat. It's animal fat. We yeah. are animals, right? Yeah, yeah. So if we, if we force our body to manufacture everything, that means we've got to run our factories, you know, our metabolic factories, and that's a dirty process that causes biological, uh, biological accumulation of damage. If we get it from our diet, we can assimilate it with minimal work. We don't run our own factories, which helps to... Uh, reduce the contribution to aging and your body's able to regulate itself the way it was meant to mm. yeah so it's, it's an interesting way to look at it just just well i, I guess you're, you it is that kind of bioavailability of what it is you need you're just putting it in in the in the easiest to use form yeah i mean this is another thing which i i'm not sure how widely disseminated this is now and and it's probably still a little bit controversial but i think so i i didn't realize i was we were doing a podcast on something or other and i was trying to do a bit of research and the the number one cause of death in women in the uk and i think this is in a few a few european countries it might maybe in the us as well i'm not sure do you know what the number one cause of death in women is in the uk no idea. Alzheimer's. Type 3 diabetes. Right, but you would have thought, you know, I don't know, cancer or yeah. heart disease or something. Yeah. Alzheimer's, I would have thought, is 
been way down on the list, but it's number one. And and I yeah. think I don't know whether I think this or I or, or I heard someone else say it and I've stolen it. I think it's down to the statins because everybody's put on a statin. Mm-hmm. Statins again, maybe this is controversial, maybe it isn't, but they don't do anything. The, the the evidence is pretty clear. They don't really give any benefit, and they give you loads of side effects. The main one of which is blocking cholesterol being used by your body, which is what your brain is made out of. Yes. And so now we wonder why, oh, it's very strange. Everyone's getting Alzheimer's and we can't understand why. That's probably a pretty good guess at why. But this is, again, you know, coming back to what we what we almost just started off talking about, mm-hmm. is, is that everything is upside down and backwards and the wrong way around, right? Everything we're told to do, we kind of shouldn't be doing and everything we're told not to do we we probably should be doing yeah i've i mean i've talked about this before about eating butter yeah so i mean we're probably of a similar age but you know when i was a kid butter was like if you eat it you're gonna die yes you know it's delicious and you can have it maybe on a sunday on some toast or whatever but really we should be eating margarine Mm because it's much better for you Mm -hmm. i mean my dad died when he was my mum says 54, I thought it was 52, from his second heart attack. Had a heart attack when he was 46. And I can remember after that was special case, skimmed milk, margarine, bunch of medicine, another heart attack, 52, dead. Mm-hmm. So I still have that kind of, um, you know, like, oh, butter. I know it's good for me, but is it is it really? Because I had that cold childhood of like, it's poisonous. But I mean... All the stuff that we are told we shouldn't be eating, we should be eating, like animal fat and meat and all of this kind mm. of other stuff. And what you're told is healthy actually is not. But I think, I think you know, again, like, like I said early on, maybe we're starting, this message is starting to get out. People are starting to actually understand, no, no, we should be doing different stuff. We should be ignoring the experts in inverted commas because they don't have our best interests at heart. And, and and doing the doing the stuff that's actually actually healthy. You know, I always used to say to people, like, if your grandparents don't know what this is, you can't eat it. Mm-hmm. If they can tell you, oh, that's a steak, it comes from the back of a cow, it's fine. Yeah. If they go, oh, I don't know what that is, you can't eat it. It's not going to do you any good. It comes out of a factory. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, interesting. So anything else you need to tell me about jiu-jitsu or being healthy i haven't (laughs) asked you avoid stress learn how to learn how to be yourself okay because i think uh i think the one of the worst things that that's come with the technology that we have is that it distracts us from being who we are and we're, we're meant to be here experiencing ourselves and discovering ourselves and, you know, when you binge watch a series, there's nothing uh, about self-discovery happening at all. And people uh, will do that every day, right? They'll go to work, they'll do something that isn't really uh, in, in allowing them to be themselves. And then they come home and they do something that doesn't allow them to be themselves. And so they, they don't spend time discovering who they are. And um, I think this is a... a in my opinion, a major contributor of stress, which inhibits repair and inhibits longevity. You know, stress is a pretty awful thing if you don't let it 
you know, we need some stress to be healthy for sure. There's a hormetic effect from stress, but we can't allow it to get, go beyond that. And uh, I think that's uh, partially down to just this dis- distraction and disconnection from what we are. I mean, this is one of the one of the the kind of um, side benefits of jujitsu is forcing you to be present and be in the moment. No devices. You you are absolutely invested in being right there because otherwise you're getting your arm broken. Yes. Or your foot broken or whatever. You you you're forced to be kind of present. And yes. I think that does have. I mean, certainly for me, it has tremendous um, carryover. That after a good jujitsu class, you just feel relaxed. Yes. You know, there, there is, like you say, that, you know, there's, there's that kind of targeted stress where you're physically putting your body under duress. You're actually allowing your mind to, to rest while your body is active. And then everything can just kind of decompress afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's one of the, it's one of the, the real, um, serious longer term benefits of, of, jiu-jitsu i mean look at people that train a lot generally you can't say there's nothing blanket for everybody but they're generally happy people Mm -hmm. they get to do like caveman shit go and fight someone yeah and see like did i get did i kill the saber-toothed tiger today no the saber-toothed tiger killed me damn it yeah i'm gonna have to do better next week but you know it's that it's that primal kind of Kind of the same as lifting, kind of the same as going out and walking around in nature with your bare feet or whatever. It just kind of connects you back to being a human. Yes. Rather does. than a, I don't know, a device. Yes. A, a plug-in. So um, I've got three questions to ask you. Okay. I don't know if you, you might have heard some of these if you listen to some other podcasts, or you might not. Yeah. Number one, would you rather fight one horse-sized duck or a hundred duck-sized horses? <laughs> I'd, I'd go for the horses, the hundred duck-sized horses. Yeah. Cool. Question number two yeah. is, if you were trapped in a TV show for a month, what would you choose? Um, that's a challenging question. I'd, I'd have to go with comedy, I think. Yeah. Know, what, yeah. What would you What would you go for? I'd, I think Blackadder. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would be a good one. If I was trapped, yeah, I'd have yeah. to laugh a lot. I think. Yeah, that'd be a good one. Yeah, trapped in in Blackadder. Do you have a favourite season or not really? Um, the yeah, my favourite season is with uh, the Prince. What's his name? Uh, f- uh Flash. Flash. Fla- no, that's the that's the Queen season. The Prince Hugh Laurie is the Prince. I yeah, like the early ones I, I mix them up. It's I know the, I know the World season, War Two one, but the others are all kind of yeah yeah. I think it's the third season. Okay, yes, Blackadder. That's a, that's a great yeah. one. And then uh, last question is, you can have 10 million pounds in cash right now, but you're being chased by a snail. (laughs) The snail has only one objective, which is to get to you. Yeah. If the snail touches you, you die a horrible death. 
the snail cannot be stopped, the snail cannot be killed. Right. Would you take the money? No, I wouldn't. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> those are, those are my three Is this questions. psychoanalysis? No, no, just <laughs> I was, my, my wife was saying to me, you know, you need to have like the same questions that you ask people so it becomes like a thing. And I started off, I was like, well, I don't even know what to ask, like favourite ice cream or whatever. And then I think I think the snail one popped up on my Instagram and I was like, that's a good question. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask that. Yeah. And then and then I think I asked it on an episode and someone commented what you should have asked was whether you'd rather fight fight the ducks or the horses. I was like, right, well, if someone bothers to actually comment on my Instagram post, I will incorporate that question. And I don't know where the T V one came from. I think just I just love kind of old school when I was little T V shows. So I thought, yeah, that's a that's a that's a nice one to have as well. So um, tell everyone about the academy. You guys are you guys are on Instagram. We are. It's at VJJ Academy. Academy. Yeah. And your website, your your RGA. RGA hyphen MK dot co dot UK. RGA hyphen MK dot co dot UK. You guys are in yep. Milton Keynes. Yep. And you got classes every day. Yes, except for Saturdays. Sunday, you're there as well. Yeah. Day, daytimes, is it Sundays? Yes, Sunday mornings. And then in the weekdays is and and uh, yeah, weekdays is is evenings. We have daytime classes on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday as well. Okay, cool. Yes. And and are you and is it sort of like beginners, advanced, whatever mixed classes? Anyone can turn up for anything. Everyone's a beginner. It doesn't matter what level you're at. Okay, yeah. so you can come in come in any time. And do you, yeah. do you, can you do you guys do take drop ins or is it like membership? No, we take drop ins. Okay, cool. Yeah. So pretty much every day, Milton Keynes. Yeah. At VJJ Academy on Instagram yeah. and RGA Dash MK. Yep. Co.uk. I'll put yeah. I'll put links for the uh, for the academy in the show notes. So if you guys uh, want to go and learn some sneaky underside control naughty chokes to to deal with your training partners, go and pay them a visit. And go and pay them a visit and and uh, train with Eddie Goff as well. Go and support his uh, his open corner. So thank you very much for coming down. I, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. It's, uh, it's good to meet you. It's good to talk to you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna go and do a bit of research on that underside control thing now. Or just come and train with us. Yeah. Or the thing is, like, whenever I have people on, I'm always like, right, I'm definitely going to train there. Yeah. And I've got like 60 episodes now, so I'm mm. like, shit, I've got a whole list of people that I, I've promised them I'm coming to train. <laughs> so I will, I will try to 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 come and train for sure. I, I would love to. Um, I'd love to see that that system. That sounds really, uh, really interesting. So thank you again for coming down. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Thank you guys for listening. I know everyone's busy. If you spent an hour and a half with us today, then I, I appreciate your time. Again, follow the podcast on Instagram at White Basement Pod. If you're listening on, uh, well, whatever, wherever you're listening or watching, leave us a review, give us a thumbs up, and uh, please share the podcast with your other people because it helps us to grow, which is what we need. Uh, new new episode every Tuesday, 5am, Tuesday mornings, they come out. Um, reach out to me on Instagram and social media, get in touch, leave me a comment. Um, if you've got any guests, anyone you think would be good to uh, to get on the show, then certainly let me know and I will endeavour to, to get them on. So thank you for listening and we'll catch you next time. If you don't deserve my love, you won't get it, no credit. Me,